Morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. And I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and my uh, collaborator this morning is Phil Duffy. Mike Jeremia, who we say is our warrior in the courtroom, is not able to be with us this morning, and we would ask for your prayers uh, for him and his family, some things they're they're going through right now, just uh, that the Lord would give them strength and, uh, and give them wisdom. Uh, particularly at this juncture. So uh, appreciate your par- prayers for uh, Mike Jeremita and uh, what's taking place with his family. Well, this morning, we've we got a brand new series that we're starting. Uh, we're going to be looking at the big question, and that is the question of the nature of government and what would be a better solution, as obviously we're in such a, 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 a mired condition as a nation. Uh, and our, our Constitution has a lot of commendable things about it, but there are some uh, ways in which it certainly could be amended and strengthened. But the bigger picture really has to do with the issue of the nature of government itself. And uh, I think it is so appropriate at this point in, in the history of our nation to be examining this question, because the assumption we seem to be floating in the midst of all around us is that bigger is better. (laughs) You know, the bigger and the bigger and the bigger the government gets and the more taxes it takes. Somehow that improves our standard of living and improves our way of life uh, and somehow improves our liberty. Uh, These are definitely questions that we need to ask as uh, we dive into this new series. We're really going to be uh, opening the can, so to speak, of every question about law and government and, and feeling free to actually evaluate our current constitution as to its weaknesses, its strengths, and uh, proposed perhaps uh, new ideas. And these new ideas you might uh, find uh, uncomfortable at points or uh, seem a little radical, but uh, we encourage you to think about these seriously because I think it is clear as we look at the state of government in our nation and in our individual states and even in our counties, and we all would agree, something is desperately wrong. There is need for correction. Uh, Whatever that correction might be is what we want to discuss on the show. And so we would appreciate your feedback as as our listeners. And you could use my personal email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com, because we would like to hear from you and and your thoughts as we discuss these issues and try to uh, look at solutions to the problems that we face with our civil government at both the federal, state, and even at the local county level in uh, this day. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on the nature of of government? Well, having acknowledged that the subject of this series is in no way connected with any specific political movement, and that its purpose is to freely explore concepts associated with constitutional law, we are mentally free to discuss the most radical of changes to the Constitution of 1787, under which this nation has been governed since 1789. We are engaged in what might be termed a mind experiment, in which all prior assumptions may be challenged. Our goal is not to bring about immediate political change, but to provoke deeper understanding about constitutions. Why is this important? There is a growing consensus among the citizenry that something is seriously wrong with our current political situation. To the extent that the people of the United States are concerned about their constitution, two polarized views have emerged. First, the progressive view, 
There are no sustaining principles of government. The Constitution was ratified 235 years ago and is obsolete. Each generation ought to be able to establish its own governing rules through statutory law created by their representatives. The second view, the conservative view, the Constitution is a nearly perfect document, which rarely requires amendment, and the amendment process described in Article 5 of the Constitution ought to be followed. There is a third view that rarely finds expression, that there are sustaining governing principles, but that the current Constitution, with all of its strengths, also suffers structural flaws. The chaos and conflict we are experiencing in society today is a reflection of those structural flaws. Thus, it is a delusion to believe that a couple of Band-Aid amendments will set this nation on the right course. This point of view is incompatible with Mark Levin's call for a convention of states that would propose amendments as described in his book, The Liberty Amendments. To begin this exploration, it is necessary to pose some basic questions, including these. The first, what is the role of government? If it is assumed that government is to serve the people in general and not special interests. The second, has government historically served this purpose? And the third, since the advent of representative government, has it moved towards its primary purpose? So let's investigate first the role of government. It's difficult to implement benign government in the absence of a consensus concerning the role that government ought to play. Throughout history, government has generally served special interests primarily and occasionally what might be called the general welfare. That these special interests would favor the centralization of power should be obvious, but for special interests to achieve centralization of power, they must have the support of a larger number who simply think a strong central government is best for society. If your orientation is for limited government with enumerated powers at the federal level, you find this thinking irrational. Currently, this is the current state of political thinking in the United States and elsewhere in the world, nor is it possible to estimate the numbers of such people or the extent their thinking reflects extensive propagandizing in government-run and government-influenced school systems. Those who love liberty can only hope that the size and influence of this group will diminish over time as a result of appropriate education. Those who believe in minimalist government claim that the role of government is to defend the liberty of the individual by guarding the nation against external enemies and by assuring domestic tranquility, the latter manifesting itself in a system of justice. The cynical have noted that government is in the protection racket. Let's look first at the military part of this, the defense part. Let's look at the need of the United States for protection against external enemies. The United States came into existence as a result of a harsh test. Great Britain had created 13 separate colonies on the east coast of the North American continent when hostilities broke out between these colonies and the government of the mother country in April 1775. The colonies formally separated July 1776, and a British attempt to force the former colonies into submission ended in September 1783 with a formal peace treaty being signed. The British attempted to use military force against the United States in the War of 1812, but by 1815 the British had to admit their inability to suppress United States independence. The French had already lost their influence to the British in North America, but then lost everything in attempting to support the cause of independence of the United States 
against France's former enemy. Spanish influence in North America was already in a downhill slide since it had lost its naval armada in a battle with the British in 1588. During the 19th century, Spain would lose its colonial possessions in both North and South America. By 1815, it should have been clear that the United States, surrounded by Earth's two largest oceans in the Gulf of Mexico, and by a culturally similar Canada to the north and a militarily weak Mexico to the south, was perhaps the most naturally defensible major nation in the world. By comparison, China and Russia are surrounded by 14 nations each, and those nations have not always been friendly with China and Russia. And yet today, the United States maintains a military budget that is larger than the military budgets of the next 10 nations combined. The United States operates approximately 750 military bases spread across 80 nations. If the United States maintained a military budget that corresponded to its true defense needs, its budget would be a fraction of its current size. With such a large standing military force, there is always the danger that military will be turned on the citizens of the United States. Let's look at the federal system of justice. Determining the right amount of power to be granted to a federal system of justice is more complex than the question of the legitimate size of the military. There are a minimum of three interacting components to the issue. The first, the body of constitutional and statutory law. Constitutions form the inner boundary of the system of justice. Prior to 1913, there was no income tax and therefore no IRS, no tax courts, and no burdening of other courts with income tax cases. Statutory law forms the outer boundary of the law, but technically only statutory law, law that is consistent with the Constitution is within that outer boundary. Unless a court is willing to challenge the constitutionality of statutory law, statutory law is considered enforceable. The second part of the system of justice is the prosecutorial part. In the United States, this is the Department of Justice at the federal level. And the third part, the court system. This includes all the federal courts up to the Supreme Court of the United States. The latter two subsystems are determined by the size and nature of federal law identifying criminal or other behavior requiring federal action. At the beginning of this nation's history, the body of federal law was quite limited, but it has grown over time. The Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932, otherwise known as the Lindbergh Law, is an example of how federal law has expanded. An argument has been made that federal agencies can pursue kidnapping cases more efficiently while ignoring the constitutional constraint that kidnapping crimes are initiated in a state which would then have jurisdiction. This is a relatively minor example of federal legislation creep. Significantly greater expansion of federal jurisdiction has risen over supposed environment protection, workplace safety, educational funding, and a host of other areas of questionable federal uh, constitutionality. The point is that the size of the federal system of justice is directly a function of this extension of legislation into unconstitutional areas that should be the realm of the states or the people. To reduce the cost of government and politically motivated judgments, our representatives in Congress must be forced to honor their oaths of office to support the Constitution. Failure to do so should trigger significant jail time. So what has the historical record of government demonstrated? 
Is government a force for good or evil? Dodging the temptation to treat the subject in a binary way to conserve thinking time, it should be apparent that specific governments theoretically may be placed on a scale from absolutely corrupt to marginally benign. Don't bother looking for very benign governments. They only exist in fairy tales. One could research the question by looking at his, uh, history longitudinally. A good source would be Will and Ariel Durant's Story of Civilization, which takes the reader from the earliest civilization, Sumer, to Napoleon's empire. The problem is that research commits the uh, reader to a 10,000-page effort. Is there another way that would give a reasonably accurate answer? First, let's recognize that humans have the potential to improve from experience. Therefore, it's probably not fair to equally weight ancient civilizations with today's so-called Western civilization. By comparison with the Romans, we would expect Western states to be more civilized. If we can demonstrate that we are less barbaric today, that might suggest that government has been a source for good. Let's select the most barbaric government out of the past and compare it with the last full century, the 20th century. Arguably, the most brutal government as recorded by Leo de Hartog in Genghis Khan, Conqueror of the World. Since Genghis Khan died around 1227, 20th century governments have had ample time to reform themselves and become more civilized. The thing to remember about Genghis Khan's military campaigns is that they were conducted to extend his personal power, that is, his government, over an immense area that reached from Korea in the east to Hungary in the west. He did not pillage for the fun of it, but in order to gather riches to himself and those who surrounded him. It was not just the immediate devastation visited upon the conquered, but also the continuing tribute that was to be paid to the conqueror. Genghis Khan could be relatively lenient with those who put up no resistance, but for those who did, the penalty could be severe. The fate of Bukhara was typical of the way the conquering Mongols treated the defeated. The people were divided into various groups. The artisans went to Mongolia as slaves. The strong young men had to follow the army to provide an expendable vanguard at the next storming of a town. Families were separated forever. The Mongols raped the women under the eyes of their fellow victims. Here is an account of Tolui, one of Genghis Khan's generals conquering Merv. Although the people offered resistance, they realized that they were in a hopeless situation. The governor offered surrender on condition that human lives were spared, an offer which Tolui accepted to hasten the capitulation. However, after the handing over the town, after handing over the town, he broke his promise. The inhabitants were driven out through the gates, and each soldier was given 300 or 400 victims to behead. Only 400 artisans were spared for transportation to Mongolia as slaves. So there is a baseline for government brutality, and eight centuries have passed since then, and the 20th century giving ample time for improvement. The governing class has learned to be a lot more civilized since, right? But some would say that the Nazis competed with Genghis Khan for being the most brutal conquerors. Was that an isolated period in modern history? What about the retribution paid upon German women at the conclusion of World War II by the Soviets? And the 20th century concluded with this description of the Bosnian War in the Balkans by Wikipedia. Raped during the Bosnian War in the late 20th century, 
was a policy of mass systemic violence targeted against women. One can hear the criticism of this line of argument, that these are examples of governments other than the United States. The United States is different. Americans believe this because what they are taught in government control systems, how much time is spent in describing the atrocities committed by military forces in the Philippines as they supposedly liberated that nation from Spanish colonialism uh, along with Cuba and Puerto Rico during the Spanish-American War. Here's a more realistic perspective as reported by the Open-Ended Social Studies website. In late 1901, Brigadier General J. Franklin Bell took command of American operations in Batangas and Laguna provinces. Writing about his approach to the war, Bell said, All consideration and regard for the inhabitants of this place cease from the day I become commander. I have the force and authority to do whatever seems to me good, and especially to humiliate all those in this province who have any pride. Thus, a brutal colonialism was imposed on the Filipinos by the government of the United States. The account continues. On December 13, Bell announced that the killing of American troops would be paid back in kind. Whenever such an event occurred, Bell proposed to select a prisoner by lot from among the officers or prominent citizens and have him executed. Was this the last time in the 20th century that the United States government would employ terror against a people seeking their independence? To answer that question, read Barbara Tuckman's The March of Folly, and particularly Book 5, America Betrays Itself in Vietnam. Here's an example of barbaric behavior in which Americans indulged during that war, as described by PBS. On March 16, 1968, the angry and frustrated men of Charlie Company, 11th Brigade, Americal Division, entered the Vietnamese village of My Lai. This is what you have been waiting for. Search and destroy. And you've got it, said superior officers. A short time later, the, kill- the killing began. When the news of the atrocities surfaced, it sent shockwaves through the United States political establishment, the military's chain of command, and an already divided American public. Did the barbarism stop at the conclusion of the 20th century? Have we forgotten Abu Ghraib so quickly? The point of rehashing this nightmarish history is that we be reminded that civilization constantly stands at the precipice of evil. It is not the evil acts of individuals that should concern us most, for that is easily contained by a just society. It is the evil that is promoted under the guise of that abstraction we call government that creates damage that far exceeds anything an individual might do. For some, government grants the license to revert to the barbarism that is inherent in a minority. For the majority who condone but do not commit evil, they are guilty of the greater societal sin by rationalizing barbarism as an, inex- as an excusable means to attain what they confusedly perceive to be the greater good. Let's take a, a look at what might be the optimal size of government. Once forced to place the abstraction of government in perspective, no rational person could conclude that the concept is inherently benign. Government is always composed of individuals who have an excessive desire to exercise power over their fellow human beings. Thankfully, there are some exceptions, and they should be recognized. More often, they are vilified, as was Barry Goldwater, vilified by Lyndon Johnson 
1964 as a right-wing extremist. Few people connect the dots between that event and President Richard Nixon's forced resignation by his fellow Republican and party leader in the Senate, Barry Goldwater. What then is the ideal size of a federal government? James Madison warned us, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls in government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. That is why the Constitution of 1787 was designed as a federal government of limited enumerated powers. But there is more we can learn from that exercise by heeding the advice of the most frequently quoted political philosopher in The Federalist, Charles de Sacondat, Baron de Montesquieu. As a member of the aristocracy of the most centralized government in Europe, France, Montesquieu understood the strengths and weaknesses of various forms of government. He admired the British system, but spoke more generally when he said in the spirit of laws, it is natural for a republic to have only a small territory. Otherwise, it cannot long subsist. In an extensive republic, there are men of large fortunes and consequently of less moderation. There are trusts too considerable to be placed in any single object. I'm sorry, in any single subject. He has interests of his own. He soon begins to think that he may be happy and glorious by oppressing his fellow citizens, and that he may raise himself to grandeur on the ruins of his country. In an extensive republic, the public good is sacrificed to a thousand private views. It is subordinate to exceptions and depends on accidents. In a small one, the interest of the public is more obvious, better understood, and more within the reach of every citizen. Abuses have less extent and, of course, are less protected. The challenge for those who crafted the Constitution was to recognize the potential danger of creating a republic that could potentially span the North American continent. With the exception of Alexander Hamilton and others who promoted a highly centralized national government, the challenge was to create a federal system in which the member states would retain their sovereignty while delegating limited, enumerated powers to a federal government. Today, instead, we have an all-powerful, imperial, central government controlling the states as subdivisions of the national government. Any serious exploration of constitutional improvements must find a way to reverse that relationship. That is the purpose of our exploring a new constitution. And thank you, Phil. I uh, particularly appreciate your spanning back in history and looking at uh, what governments over time, you know, Genghis Khan is a good example of brutal government where the uh, the one in power, his only purpose is to gain more power and more wealth unto himself. He cares nothing about the people he subjugates. And uh, obviously the government is is a fiefdom on uh, for his benefit alone. No, Nobody else is going to benefit. He, he's going to benefit. And those who are, are connected to him, his favorites, his chosen. So when you look at that form of government, you say, well, yeah, that's a, just a, a power grab and, and the worst sort. But the question is, what alternative do you have to that? And I think it comes back to, and I love the quote that you uh, gave us there from uh, Federalist Paper 51, James Madison, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. That is, if uh, uh, men acted in obedience to God's law perfectly all the time, day and night, without, uh, without exception, so God's law says, thou shalt not steal. No human being stole from any other human being. 
thou shalt not commit adultery, no human beings commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder, no human. In other words, if the whole law of God was obeyed perfectly by human beings, well, you wouldn't need any form of government because everyone would be obedient to the law uh, in, in their own heart. And then he goes on to say, if angels were to government, in other words, rather than human beings, uh, and we might wish that, where you know, when we have things like Beijing Biden uh, destroying our country with open borders and uh, taxing us to no, yeah, all these sort of things we see going on, that we might say, yeah, it would be a great idea if angels were to govern us instead of human beings. However, God has not deigned in His design of universe and design of Earth and the history of man for angels to govern us. But again, if angels were, as Madison says, to govern us, well, then again. No external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Why? Because the angels do that which is always perfectly right, just, and good. They never do anything selfishly. They never do it for any uh, private interest. They do uh, the Father in heaven. They do his perfect will in everything they do. So again, uh, you don't need to have a structure of government that creates checks and balances, which is what uh, Madison is arguing for there in Federalist uh, 51. And so he, he says, well, obviously, men are not angels, and obviously, we don't have angels governing us. So in framing a government, which instead is to be administered by men who are fallen and sinful and are going to tend to abuse power entrusted to them. So administering a, a government administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in these two projects. He says, the first project, you must enable the government to control the governed. And actually, this is the easier of the two projects because... Oh, tin horn dictators around the world from Genghis Khan on down. They found it very easy to control the people. You just murder enough people, torture enough people, rob from enough people. And eventually people get the message, oh, I ain't getting away with anything. I better do exactly as I'm told, even if what I'm told to do appears to be unjust, even if it appears to be a violative of God-given right. I just got to do what I'm told, and that way I stay out of trouble. So whether it's a Mao Zedong or a Stalin, Pol Pot or Hitler, that those tyrants have found it pretty easy uh, to enable the government to control the governed. But the very difficult project that he next puts in the next place is to oblige the government to control itself. And when we look at Washington, D.C. today, we see a government completely out of control spending trillions and trillions of dollars it does not have on things that it has no legitimate authority to be doing. Uh, the Constitution doesn't permit a Department of Education. And, and, you know, on and on the list goes of the things that uh, the federal government spends money on. It has no permission to do so from uh, we the people vis-a-vis -vis, uh, our U.S. Constitution. So when we ask the question, well, wait a minute, how do we resolve this problem? They designed a Constitution that was trying to balance the powers between the state government, federal government, and the individual liberties in order to protect the God-given rights of uh, the individual people. And as we have already said, that uh, it is a great design in many respects, but there are flaws, there are problems, there are ways in which clearly right now it is not functioning, it's not working, not only not working the way they designed it, but uh, doing things completely opposite to what uh, it was uh, it, it designed to do by the framers of the Constitution in the summer of 1787. And so when we ask the question, I think we need to step back uh, and look at the biggest picture possible as to what is involved in this. And I, 
was this morning just reading through uh, First Kings in the Old Testament and uh, came across First Kings chapter 12, the passage where uh, Solomon, the great King Solomon, had died and his son Rehoboam was about to ascend the throne of all Israel. And it's interesting, another point being made in scripture that government is always by consent of the governed. So Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was not automatically going to be the king of all 12 tribes of Israel. Israel gathered together to have a discussion with the king. And uh, when they held that discussion with the king, they asked him this question. He said, your father made our yoke grievous. That is heavy taxation, the corvée, which was a uh, forced labor that you had to work physically for the government so many months of the year, maybe repairing roads, building bridges, doing whatever projects the government wanted you to do. But anyway, your labor was conscripted by Corvée, uh, by the government. And th those were both heavy in taxation, heavy in the Corvée. And the, the people said to the potential king here, Rehoboam, now therefore make th thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, make it lighter and we will serve thee. And the king said, give me three days. I'll come back and give you an answer. And he talked with the old men, the men who had been the advisors to his father, King Solomon. And uh, these old men advised him in this way. They spake unto him, saying, if thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day and will serve them, <coughs> excuse me, serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So the advice of the elder uh, statesman here was, look, government is about serving the needs of the people. The most important need is protection of their God-given rights, protection from an enemy invasion, another army coming in, uh, protection from uh, their fellow citizens who might rob them, might murder them. And so if you will be a servant to this people. Now, Rehoboam, if you read the rest, rest of the chapter of 1 Kings uh, chapter 12, you'll find that Rehoboam did not listen at all to the advice of uh, the wise counselors of King Solomon. Instead, he got together with the hotheads of his own generation, and they said, no, no, give him this counsel. Tell him, uh, I'm going to make your uh, taxes higher. I'm going to make your corvée more grievous. In fact, uh, my father, you know, he laid a heavy yoke on you. I'm going to lay a heavier yoke on you. My father chastised you with whips. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. Whoa, I'm going to sting you with scorpions. You thought it was bad under my father. I'm going to make the government so much grievous and so much heavier, so much worse for you. And so the communication of Rehoboam, who was a foolish young man, was that government exists for the aggrandizement of those who are in power to rob, steal, pillage, plunder in any way they choose the people who are under their dominion. Kind of the Genghis Khan view of government. Government exists for the government to abuse a set of people stealing their wealth, taking their labor, maybe killing them, torturing them, whatever the government wants to do, because the government exists for those in power. It's all about those in power. Now, Rehoboam was a fool and, and he was pointed out to be a fool. And uh, the result, if you read the rest of that chapter, was a rebellion against him where the 10 northern tribes separated from the house of David. Rehoboam was the grandson of King David, separated from the house of David. So we're going to form our own government. We are going to secede from this united kingdom of Israel, where the 12 tribes are all under the house of David. We're going to form our own government with our own king, the, one, the king that we choose, and it's not going to be a descendant of King David. 
And the amazing thing, if you read the entire chapter, you see that all of this was approved by God. God approved because he holds by the principle, the consent of the governed. That if the people, and here the people of Israel say, hey, your taxes are too high, the corvée demanding our labor is too extensive and takes too many uh, too many months of our uh, livelihood away from us, we would be gladly be the servants to this government if the government is reasonable in its level of taxation and reasonable in the corvée demand of labor from we the people. And Rehoboam refuses to do that, does the opposite, and uh, uh, God says to him ultimately, this was from me. I tore away these 10 tribes and they are forming their own government with my full approval. And when you look at the history of our own country, that's exactly what we were doing with Great Britain. We're saying the king of Great Britain, and this is spelled out very clearly in the Declaration of Independence, the king of Great Britain is no longer fit to be the ruler of a free people because the king of Great Britain has done great evils to us in violation of our God-given rights. It's interesting to see what happens there in the rest of uh, chapter 12 of 1 Kings. Um, the uh, decision on the part of Rehoboam, even though he heard the message clearly, the 10 tribes says, we're no longer part of your government. We're no longer under your authority. We will not pay any of your taxes. We are not part of you at all. We form our own separate government. The 10 tribes and those 10 tribes other ultimately became known as Israel and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south became known as Judah. So the kingdom of Judah was uh, lost 10 of its tribes, uh, the northern tribes that became the kingdom of Israel. And uh, the decision on Rehoboam's part, he didn't like this outcome. You know, he wasn't happy that these people left. And what he did is he sent his tax collector, Adoram, the tax collector, uh, to go and tax those people who had just left his kingdom. He basically said to them, the only way you're getting out of here is you're going to pay the tax that I'm going to tax you anyway. I don't care that you say you've formed a separate government. Uh, and ultimately, the people of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, they executed Adoram, the tax collector. They executed the IRS sent from the kingdom of Judah and said, you have no legitimate right to taxes. Taxation of a government that is not under your authority is an act of war. You're committing war against us. Therefore, we are executing the tax collector. They executed him. And uh, King Rehoboam responds by raising an army. He goes back to Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. He raises thousands of men to go to war to force those 10 northern tribes back into his in submission to his kingdom and his taxes and his control and his authority. And he gets ready to launch this war. And God sends a prophet, Shemaiah, uh, saying uh, that, that he is not to do this, that this is from the Lord. Do not go fight against your brethren, brethren, children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for the thing is from me, the Lord says. And Rehoboam rightly listens to the prophet, does not go to war against his brethren to the north who have uh, separated and formed their own government. The parallels are fascinating because, I mean, this is exactly what happened in our Declaration of Independence. We separated from Great Britain, so we're not paying your taxes anymore. We're not in submission to your authority. You are no longer our king we have consented together to form another government separate from your government. And King George III's response was, you ain't doing that. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to send my lobster backs and they're going to kill you. They'll start killing you at Lexington and Concord and they'll just continue killing you and killing you and killing you until you submit. Here's one Christian supposed king killing another group of Christians uh, in, in the colonies. That's wicked. And that's the opposite of what uh, Rehoboam, as foolish a king as he was, he at least listened to the prophet says, no, no, no. 
people have the right to be governed by the government they choose themselves, consent of the governed. And when a government chooses to separate from you, you have no right to kill them, to force them back into submission unto you. Well, this also parallels exactly what happened in what I could only call the war between the states. The southern states had every right under God's law and every right under our Constitution to depart from this union, to secede from this union, just as we had seceded from Great Britain and the government of King George III, just as uh, the 10 northern tribes had seceded from the kingdom of David and said, we're no longer part of your government. We do not agree to be part of your government. So I appreciate, Phil, that you pointed out that uh, it really is by consent of the governed, we the people can determine ourselves how we want to be governed. And it is a wicked thing on the part of those still in power, whether it's King George III or Rehoboam or the 16th president of the United States. It is wicked on their part to say, we're going to kill you and we're going to force you into our taxing system uh, if, if you will not comply. We're going to do this to you because you must be under our authority. And if you read carefully, the 16th president's first inaugural address. Many people read his second, but they never read his first. If you read his first, you see he had uh, admitted there that he had no quarrel with the states who had separated if they would simply pay the tax. If they paid the tax, he would not do anything to them. But if they would not pay the tax, he was going to send his soldiers into the South and he was going to kill them until they paid the tax. The exact thing that Rehoboam had proposed to do and God forbid him from doing it. And the exact thing that King George III had done, uh, even though the law of God forbid him uh, from doing it. So I think one of the basic principles we need to come to an understanding of is that the consent of the governed is a key principle. Uh, the problem we face today is there is such a division in the view of what is the purpose of civil government that we must start and rebuild from that point a body of citizens who agree with our founders in the Declaration of Independence, agree, first of all, that there is a creator God who made all things, and that creator God is the one who gives us our rights. He's the one who gives us the right to life, the right to property, and so on. Our rights come from God. They do not come from civil government. And thirdly, they said in the Declaration of Independence, the only purpose of human civil government, only purpose, is to protect those God-given rights. Nothing else. It is it's, That's its job description. It should do nothing more than that, uh, and, and it should do nothing less than protecting the God-given rights. And if you talk about a government like that, uh, you know, we might call it the Declaration of Independence government, it would therefore be a very small government indeed, and its tax reach into our pockets would be very small uh, as well. What's your thoughts, Phil? Well, um, I was very interested in the, the idea of the debt limit because, of course, we had the, the famous compromise and everybody uh, claiming what a great great thing it is. Uh, and then I, I think we come to just the opposite conclusion here because the way this system was set up was that the House of Representatives basically had a veto on any legislation that um, required funding. Uh, they could say, no, no, we are not funding it. And that's a basic principle of government. It was, it's there. It's a, a check and a balance on the, the kind of oppression and tyranny that, that we're seeing right now. But what do, what do we get instead? A significant number of Republicans joining Democrats, who, of course, always love to spend. A significant number of Republicans, including the Speaker of the House, um, compromising badly 
I mean, as you look at the at the uh, compromise that was made, there are virtually no substantial um, reductions in the cost of government whatsoever. The debt limit is increased for another couple of years for whatever reason. Uh, who who would know? I mean, why is it necessary to increase the debt at a point in time when the nation is basically on the the brink of a significant recession? But nonetheless, that's the so-called compromise that the leaders of the opposition gave us. Now, they claim that they fear default by government. Oh, the boogeyman. I mean, I can't believe this, that people would believe something that nonsensical. Number one, all they have to do is to reduce the cost of government. Yeah, not the, all the way, just a little bit to give us you know, a, a teaser, if you will. That would have done. That would have done very, very nicely. But the second part of that is that nobody's questioning what's a default. We have been in default for over a half a century with the federal government. That's when Nixon closed the, the uh, uh, window on the redemption of gold to uh, foreign holders of notes saying that we would, we would pay in uh, gold. Well, we said, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, you took you took us uh, you know you you accepted that uh, we could be trustworthy, but no, we're not. You know, we're closing arbitrarily. We're closing the the window. Sorry, slam. And that was it. That was that was over a half a century ago, and yet people do not recognize today, particularly when they get their those default. Uh, I'm sorry, when they get those uh, checks in the mail, that they're they're receiving money that is created out of thin air. They're just pieces of paper if anything, or electronic uh, uh, current currency, uh, they're receiving it from a default government. The federal government does not have the means to pay all of its obligations. Indeed, we face a, a crisis because the value of the dollar is plummeting uh, on the world scale as well. And it, obviously, the only reason it's been propped up since uh, Nixon closed the gold window is at the same time the agreement was made there with OPEC that... Uh, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, would become the world reserve currency, and every nation that wanted to purchase oil would have to obtain dollars in order to purchase oil. So even if we produce nothing but those greenback pieces of paper, people would accept those greenback pieces of paper because they all needed to get oil. What a wonderful deal for us, but a terrible deal for the rest of the world because it basically robbed the rest of the world while we continued to enjoy prosperity that, in a sense, we really didn't deserve. And uh, I know that's that's hard for us as Americans to hear that, but but that's the the brutal truth. And so when you are in a situation where you're actually not producing anything, I mean, yeah, there's oil production going on, but that's happening in other countries primarily, uh, you know, and and only a little bit coming from our country. When that's happening, and people are forced to get dollars, what happens when something changes and the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency? And that's the juncture we are at right now where the loss of that world reserve currency status means that the dollar is going to be in free fall. So hey, what you're talking about, Phil, is actually going to be ex exploding in terms of the impact on we, the citizens, as we see the value of our dollar plummets, the value of our savings, investments, even the value of our house, although it might look like the house goes up in price, up, 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 but the money you actually would obtain when you sell it is worth less and less and less uh, as, as each uh, as each month goes by, so we face a, a situation where the government has so corrupted our financial system 
that we're facing, uh, you know, some very dire consequences. And again, this really comes back to, to the question, what's the purpose of government? Many people believe it's the purpose of government is to provide for the the health and welfare and well-being of every citizen of the United States, including that, you know, all these illegals that come into our country, we give them free housing in hotels. So $500 a night hotels in New York City are housing illegals. Who's paying for that? Well, the taxpayers are paying for it. They're being fed three meals a day. Who's paying for that? The taxpayers are paying for that. So people break into our country and we taxpayers are being forced to house and clothe them and feed them and, and provide for them when they produce nothing. This kind of insanity is, uh, you know, I, I guess you would say the latter stages of a collapsing empire. And, and in my opinion, that, that's what appears. So I, I think it's going to be time uh, very shortly where we're going to uh, need to rebuild from the ashes of, of the collapse. You know, in my comments, uh, I talked about the majority who would not perhaps uh, conduct the evil themselves, but who condone the evil based upon this idea that uh, centralization is good. You know, all the good things that can be done, like sending stimulus checks and uh, <clears throat> sending illegals to to uh, uh, fancy hotels in New York City and all the rest of it. And and the question in all of this is, how could anybody come to this conclusion through normal education? I mean, I'll admit that many of us are, are taught something about Santa Claus and the Easter bunnies when we're children. But, you know, we go to school and probably about the eighth or uh, by the time we're eight or nine years old, we figured it out. And at the same time, our parents are telling us, Money doesn't grow on trees. And yet here's a government that claims that money does. And it has a formal name now. It's called modern monetary theory. And the basic idea of modern monetary theory is that you can print as much money as you want. Of course, look at Weimar Germany. They did it. Look at Venezuela. Look at Argentina. Look at Hungary. And if you will, look at... Uh, France, and uh, just before the uh, the revolution. I mean, the revolution was brought on by this idea that you could print money, you could bring it out of thin air, and it was worth something. No, there are consequences. The consequences show up slowly. And I think Hemingway made a comment about this uh, one time. How do you go? How do you go broke? How do you go bankrupt? Well, he said first it's slowly, and then it's suddenly. And that's the point, you know. Um, if you inflate the, the monetary supply, you you may get away with it for for decades, but then suddenly, bang, it hits, and the damage that is caused is just unbelievable. And we may be approaching that bang point because, uh, uh, as I, as I said, when the world reserve currency reality hits our shores, it means trillions of dollars that have been held by foreign governments are suddenly not needed by them anymore. They don't need to. They can use their own, own currency. Saudi Arabia and, and uh, China just struck a deal whereby the uh, yuan is, is going to be the basis for exchanging oil uh, for currency and uh, so on. So when that happens is, uh, what, what what would China need? The billions of dollars. They, by the way, they billions of treasury dollars that uh, they have loaned money to our government. Well, they're just going to dump those. Why would, they, why would they want those to retain those? There's no reason... The United States is not producing anything, although they might go buy up real estate in the United States with that, which I, apparently is happening all over our country. Uh, so we're in a situation where we have, like you say, Phil, we believe the myth 
you know, that uh, there's a free lunch. Money grows on trees and you don't, the government can produce money out of thin air and the government can manipulate things such that everyone benefits in the economy. And we need to come back to the idea that it's very clear in our God-given right to own property. And property is something that you have obtained either by inheritance or by your own sweat and, and work. So the uh, equity that you put into uh, a house, for example, is money that you have earned and you've invested in that property. And therefore, you own that house eventually if you pay off the loan and you, you own it free and clear, we say. But if the government comes along and says, you know, uh, we're going to take that property from you, eminent domain, and we're going to pay you whatever we think it is worth. Clearly, you don't have the ability to protect your God-given right to own property because the government, which is the biggest, most powerful bully on the block, has decided to take that uh, property from you. Think of uh, uh, Suzette Kilo in New London, Connecticut, the only property owner that held out and fought against the eminent domain of the city of New London. She took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ultimately said, sorry, Suzette, the government of New London can steal your property and force you off your property for any price, for any reason they want. And basically, you don't own that property. <coughs> Excuse me, you're just simply renting it from the government. And if you don't abide by the terms the government wants, they come and take it. Or if the government simply wants that property, they can take it from you. So we have a government that instead of protecting our God-given rights, which is the whole design and the whole purpose of government, as the Declaration of Independence says, instead we have a government doing the exact opposite. Instead of protecting it, it becoming the bully and the thief on the block stealing from us. And the, the most insidious form of, of stealing is inflation. So uh, what's Biden, uh, uh, six, seven, eight trillion, kind of lose count of how many trillions he has added to the federal deficit when he adds those trillions, he reduces the value of the money that we have saved and put in the bank, the money we've put in investments, including the money that is equity in our home. It might seem like we're getting somewhere because the home price keeps going up, but really that indicates that the value of the dollar that we would receive when we sell our home is worth less and less and less and less. In fact, the rate of inflation is greater than the rate of most people's, uh, the price of their home increasing. So they're actually on the losing end. And that's true. Of, obviously, if you put the money in the bank and you're getting oh half a percent interest rate or something small like that, you're losing every year because the rate of inflation, which is under the control of the government, the more money they print, the faster inflation grows. The rate of inflation is stealing from the people what they have saved and what, what they have earned. Well, you're right about the, uh, the dumping of the dollars by foreigners and uh um, it's all a matter of supply and demand, and the, the value of the dollar is always determined uh, in relation to other currencies, and including the Russian and the Chinese uh, uh, currency. So it is a significant issue, uh, but that's only one of the forces. Uh, the other force is simply the, um, with the explosion of, of new money into an economy, what happens is that uh, sooner or later, and generally quite soon, um, suppliers realize that um, they, they have to raise their prices. And when they raise their prices, of course, who gets hurt? It's the people who must consume who are on the margin uh, who are, are hurt most. And basically, all of this comes down to uh, one thing, and that is um, the dollar, if it is devalued significantly, 
will have a terrible impact on you know the middle class and the lower class. Upper class has got enough wealth they can live through it, or perhaps they can benefit from it in in some way. But every dollar denominated asset, every dollar denominated income stream that we rely upon, such as Social Security, you know, if your Social Security check only uh, gets you half of the buying power that you had uh, a year ago or two years ago, you know, you are in deep trouble. A lot of people will be facing starvation if that occurs. Now, the people who have mortgages, long-term mortgages that are fixed, they're in fine shape. Well, yes and no. How many of that, how much of that can banks absorb? You know, you're going to see a lot of banks going out of, out of, uh, um, existence as a result of this because they've locked themselves into these low interest rates and their their mortgages are almost worthless to them as assets on the books. They're not reflected quite yet, but when they are reflected fully, you know, then you realize they too, you know, are not sustainable. They will have to go out of business. And at some point, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation doesn't have enough money to cover all of those losses. So who is going to pick up the tab? Uh, excellent question, because you know those big bank failures we've already uh, seen, Silicon Valley Bank and so on. That uh, yes, okay, the FDIC said, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to cover those, and that you know the depositors no problem at all. Um, I don't know if that has worked out perfectly like they promised, but suppose it does. Well, what about the next big bank failures? You're absolutely right. At some point in time, the FDIC does not have the money to bail out all the banks that are likely to fail as uh, this inflationary spiral heads heads our way. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL and inviting you to uh, chime in on our show. Tell us what your thoughts are, what your concerns, what your questions are. You can use my personal email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. And we are going to continue this discussion and talk about uh, what would be some solutions what would be some improvements as we walk through a, a thought experiment, recognizing that we need to reach a groundswell of individual citizens throughout these United States who want to see a change back to a government that truly does protect our God-given rights. So join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution matters. <laughs>